Hey everybody, welcome to IntelliCast. This is our best of part three, best of 2020, the last podcast of the year. I don't know what number this is. We're, it feels like in the hundreds. We did a lot of podcasts this year. This one is really going to focus on the highlights of our data quality series. And first of all, kudos to producer Emma, intern Emma. What do we call her? We haven't talked about Emma in a long time. Producer Emma, co-producer Emma, intern Emma. I think intern Emma is what you've called. We've referenced to her in the past. She did produce one episode at least of the podcast, but um, she put some clips together, some nip, some snippets of various interviews that we did surrounding data quality. And so you'll have a bunch of cool stuff if you care about data quality, which I assume you do. It could be good driving podcast material. We have Owen Hanks, Paul Neto, John Martin of Measure Protocol. They just won an award as well um, very recently. Um, I saw, but smart people, fun people, passionate about data quality. So I'll stick around for them. Terry Crawford of MMR Research Associates. Um, he's, he used to live in Cincinnati, and I think he still lives in Cincinnati. And he talks a lot about data quality, also shares the passion. And then we have Steve Bernard of the Link Group. He's in Atlanta, and um, he talks a little bit more about healthcare research. He focused on um, which is a little bit different, you know, data quality when you're thinking about healthcare research and physicians and medical professionals. And then finally, we have Tia Mauer. She is a scientist at Procter and Gamble, and she is a really interesting take on data quality. If you've seen her present at conferences, she does lots of cool stuff. She is super passionate about it, and um, I think it's an also a good interview. So stick around and listen to all the interviews if you can. Um, I think they're really good. So here you go. One of the key benefits that you, you've talked about, which I'm passionate about myself, is um, around data quality and how that's one of your focuses is to really lift up data quality. And so I'd love to talk about how do you see data quality? What are the things that you're doing to kind of ensure data quality? You talked a lot about a lot of them, but I'd love to maybe have a, just a quick discussion about it. Yeah, I think there's, you know, the, the most direct way that we think of data quality comes down to three things. One is whether this is an actual person that's on the other end that's providing some, you know, some information. Uh, secondly, are they who they say they are? And the third one is, are they being truthful in what they're, in what they're providing? The reality is on the last one, often it comes down to survey and data collection design. Um, so I'll limit some of my comments on that, but, you know, I think through technology um, and the approach, um, you know, we can do, you know, different types of validation on this is an actual person. So, you know, part of our registration process is to go through some validation checks so we can, you know, being on a mobile device, we can detect whether, um, you know, through GPS and, you know, through connections, if they're connected through a VPN and, they say in their U.S., but they're actually some, you know, somewhere else. Um, we can we do a bunch of validation around um, data that they enter. You know, we can do connections against you know things like LinkedIn. So a lot of it is both validating if they are a person and looking at some behaviors, trying to find consistent um, consistent uh, you know behaviors. And you know, I think the most the way that most are approaching you know, data quality in industry is they go through exercises to stress test the, the respondents 
um, which in many ways I feel is very unnatural. Like, see, there's nothing natural about taking them through 10 minutes of clicking on radio buttons and then asking them to spend two minutes on um, some, you know, deep question and you want them to write a bunch of, 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 of text. I think it's, um, we're kind of ignoring what a natural experience is with, um, with, with consumers today. So I think a lot of it, you know, there's no silver bullet. It's about stacking to build confidence, trying to, um, you know, look at context and validation and understanding what some of the, you know, reliable behaviors are. But I think a lot of it ultimately comes down to transparency. Like I'm, as a buyer, I'm okay with problems with data because that's part of the, um, uh, you know, you know, part of the process. But I want to have transparency into that. So some of the things we are doing is, you know, we're building these transparency reports. Like John was saying, is you get a delivery of data, knowing how long they've been on on the system. You know, what's the tenure? You know, how many surveys do they take? You know, um, you, we have reputation systems. So we're starting to track, you know, what are positive behaviors that are reliable, but then doing this on both sides of the audience. Like we've had a number of partners that unfortunately we had to boot them off of the system because we are seeing poor survey experiences, which are being reflected in the experience of the um, of the respondent, so we do things like have you know ratings on every data job that individuals do. So imagine a world where you get offered twenty seven cents to participate in a fifteen minute survey on a mobile device, and it's coming from a one star rating, uh, you know, survey provider. What's the liability of um, what's the predictability of them actually participating? So we're trying to do things to discourage certain behaviors and encourage uh, encourage other ones. And a lot of it comes down to positive experiences. You know, at SampleCon this year, it was amazing how many discussions were around, um, you know, um, experiences about having to think, especially now that we're looking at Gen Z, they have different expectations around privacy and experiences. And, you know, some of the talks around dispelling, dispelling the, the myth of professional respondents that they mean, you know, poor quality. I think most of the quality problems come through a lack of transparency. And so we're trying to address it by implementing uh, a number of techniques to, to expose that. Brian, Brian, can I turn this back on you? You, you know, we have a very, um, we have a particular view on this as an as an operator right now and, and having a, in a sense, a direct connection to these respondents. Um, and so we sort of think about things from first principles, but from the, those first principles being, how do you get a respondent to behave in a way that you, that you want, but how does that, how does that align or not with the, with, with what you guys see when you're sort of, you get the benefit of looking out across many different sample sources over, over extended periods of time. I mean, does that, uh, yeah, I guess I'm interested in what, what your take is. I think it's fantastic is. because <clears throat> I love the transparency, first of all. Um, that's so key. And I think that one of the challenges that we have is that I spend an inordinate amount of time and many researchers spend an inordinate amount of time to try to almost trick respondents. I am constantly trying to design a question. What color is the sky? What is two plus two? Hey, take this, solve this CAPTCHA. Um, I'm reversing scaling. I'm putting red herrings in. And 
that is not really fair to someone that's willing to take a survey for 30 cents, right? That, and it's unfortunate as researchers that over the course of the past, I, mean, I don't know how long, 10 years, 20 years, forever, that we've kind of been forced to do that. And online has added a whole nother level of challenges for us as researchers, that we can't just design a questionnaire that focuses on the business objectives. That's, that's altruistic in these days. We have to try to prove that the people that are taking the survey are who they say they are. And we have, we, we've designed these crazy methods with, you know, there's a product out there called Honesty Detector, and there's all kinds of things out there. And it's very unfortunate and it is not fair. And so when we talk about lowering response rates and we talk about how many people are actually taking surveys and we are not sure about duplication across panel, and all of these things almost don't even get to the part where you get to evaluate whether they're just a good respondent. Like, did they offer a good open-ended answer, right? And so that's what I see, unfortunately, and most it, – it almost makes me sad when a researcher gives me a questionnaire that does not have that in there. Um, and I have to tell them, you know, you might want to add some data quality questions in there. And so I've always thought that your company measure, as well as the benefits that you're bringing, will help fix that because it's just – it's honestly a shame. I'm like, why would anybody take a survey when – like you mentioned earlier – or Paul did, I think, that 90% of the time, you don't even get to do what we asked you to do. The 10% of the time that we that you do get to do it, we're going to try to trick you, right? And to me, that's just a failure of our whole industry. And now I made myself sad. So I, John or Paul, do you have anything to say about that? <laughs> Is that what you see? Do you all see that too? Do, do clients send you questionnaires where you're trying to trick your respondents? Yeah, we do. Yeah, we, we do yeah. that a lot. And I do think that this industry is, you know, it's set for a tidal change. Um, and we've seen this in other industries as well. Um, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, we've spent time in, you know, ad technology, um, which has gone through a few wild, you know, wild brides. And we were in the middle of it. We had just sold our tech company to an ad tech company. And um, Mark Pritchard stands up and says, I'm not, we're not going to spend another penny uh, without having some kind of guarantees uh, around quality. And this was in the sense in, in that industry is around viewability or ads being viewable. O almost overnight, that literally changed the industry. Companies were disappearing after that. Transparency completely rocked that uh, industry. And if you look at what that, where that industry is today is they're starting to focus a lot more on the fundamentals, things like creative quality. Mm -hmm. Now, I believe, and you know, three of us talk about this a lot, that there's going to be a moment that the big brands are going to stand up and, and say, there is a bare minimum of quality of respondents and how you treat your respondents. You know, this is the Clean Water Act. Um, that will all of a sudden do a cleanup in the industry. That certain things just will not be, um, you know, be be acceptable. And in the meantime, we're kind of circumventing, you know, playing these little games with, um, you know, with respondents, trying to trick them and trying to see if they happen to click on the wrong thing. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 frustrating. It's a, it's a collective action problem is what it is. I mean, Paul, you mentioned Jackie Lorch from Donata and that presentation that she gave. And, and it was exactly about this, where she was essentially saying that 
for market research as it stands today, that respondents are, or the, the, the happiness, the satisfaction of respondents is an externality for this industry, right? Um, even today, you know, this is sort of in ways small and large. So on um, the programmatic marketplaces today, um, which again, I, this is not a rant against programmatic marketplaces. I mean, we, we offer programmatic um, access to it and we, we interact with these marketplaces. But, but um, the, as a researcher, as a buyer on these marketplaces right now, there's very, very weak incentives to have a low um, conversion rate. And, and what, what the programmatic marketplaces mean by conversion rate is the percentage of people that um, get let into the survey, that, that qualify into the survey. Um, so uh, the, you know, the, the averages on marketplaces today are sort of in the single digits, the high single digit percentages, right? So where, So that means that out of every 10 people that click on an invitation, wherever they find that invitation, they get to the first page of the survey, they fill out some demos, they answer a few more questions, um, nine out of 10 of them are getting screened out at that point, right? And there's just, there's no justification for that. It's like Paul says, you once you see this stuff, you can't unsee it, you can choose to ignore it, um, or you can choose to do something about it. Um, but so, you know, we just we have to stop treating um, respondents as an externality. It, it's it's come back to bite us, and then we're in this sort of negative feedback loop where all of our behaviours um, are predicated on this sort of original sin, and we just keep spiralling further and further. Where prices continue to go down, which means respondents are less likely to respond, um, which means that you now have no longevity with your respondents in a panel. Um, which means you can't pay them very much because you have to make, as a panel company, you have to make all of your money from the first survey that they that they take because you probably won't see them again after that. Um, and so, yeah, we, we we need a reset, and it's non-trivial to get that to get that reset. I mean, clearly, you know, as Owen said, we sort of we we um, launched into this space thinking, all right, what we'll do is we'll create a, a, a protocol that can underline everybody, and we can get everybody to to build on top of that with a new mm-hmm. set of road rules. But that you know, from a practical perspective, that's just very difficult to pull off. And so we have to sort of increment into this, into this new world, this new set of rules, um, bit by bit, turn by turn, by, um, by sort of building products which are compelling um, because of and in addition to, to these, um, these quality guarantees and so on and so forth. And, you know, I'd love to talk to you about sample quality. That's something that we're trying to talk to our guests more often about is, and by the way, it's very subjective. What you might think is sample quality is different than what I might think. And what we could probably ask 50 people and it's different. And that's both the, the beauty exactly. and kind of the sure. curse, I think, of marketing research. Yeah. So I'd, I'd love to kind of hear maybe just top level, like what, where does good data come from when you're thinking about so quality? So that's a great question because as you said, it's subjective, but um, it's subjective because, but how do I say this? There still has to be some science in it. It's just that with online research and with any research, you just have to know what your biases are going in, right? I mean, uh, you know, when uh, telephone research was around, you had lines were fully open and, you know, you could call any household and you knew that you would get a broad range of respondents by doing that. Now, not everyone would 
participate, but everyone had the opportunity to participate. Then things came in such as caller ID and things like that. And sample companies had to adjust and say, okay, we're just going to create sample in order to get around like these people who are no longer listed in directories, you know, who aren't taking calls. We're going to plus one, a known number. And, you know, that will then brought in that. That's our way of getting around that. So you have to adjust to your biases. And with online, you know, we go into things uh, knowing, okay, for the most part, online samples are going to be representative of little higher income. It is probably going to skew suburban, things like that. Uh, as we know, it definitely skews female. And you know what biases you have, so then you just find a way to work around those biases and what's right for a particular project. So I would say what makes good research is knowing you know, having a very firm idea of the type of respondent that you're looking for, and that's something you set up with the client, and then trying to work with what you get, and you work around those biases. And I think that's the best way to, to conduct research now in an online environment. Okay. Andrew, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that that's key, right? I mean, for, like if, if I back, if I take off my sample hat and sort of just back up into at like a statistical level, right? You know, if the sample itself is not representative of the audience that we're trying to research, then all of the results are exactly. kind of null and void, right? Um, but what, what you're saying, you know, makes exact sense that, you know, we can't, say something, you know, let's say we're testing the concept for a, a, a dress or um, a, a bow or something like that. And then we find out that we, you know, we're only surveying people who had subscribed to um, Wrangler magazine or something like that, you know, just, and, and so it could be totally off if you don't know who the target audience is um or you know if it's for aarp and we were surveying people who were 20 years old but i think it goes beyond the you know just sort of the the demographic biases as well and, and when you get into the design of a questionnaire and you're thinking about like the screening questions right and you think about the different targeting that we have available, you know, what, who are we giving the opportunity to even screen out? And I'm getting a little bit technical right now. Um, but what I'm trying to drive at is beyond the demographic biases, what are things that you do or that you look for to make, to make sure that you're talking? Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a great question. And what you said is actually a very good Point. I mean, if you are only interviewing people who subscribe to a certain type of magazine, yeah, I mean, you might as well just forget your data. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, I mean, it's just going to be bad. But the thing is, I would, you know, what we look for is we look for a sample source, and obviously we rely on folks like you to provide this. Uh, one that is drawn from multiple sources because the more diverse uh, you can make the pool of sample, the more likely you are to have a more valid picture of uh, of whatever population you're interviewing. In this case, we'll say, for example, like the United States, the more sources that you draw from in order to create your panel, 
the more diverse that, that group is going to be and more likely to be reflective of the entire population. And I think that's really what we look for is people who are pulling in multiple sources from many different areas. Uh, some we know are better than others in order to add to that diversity. And so that might also not, well, and I'm not going to put words in <laughs> this is a question. <laughs> um, you're, you would also be looking for then, I would think, not just diversity of sources from the sense of, hey, we're aggregating multiple panels, right? Like a, a marketplace or a platform. Um, but you're actually looking for, um, you know, companies that have like diverse panels, like the panels themselves are different. Um, and people who are perhaps recruiting in, in different ways, right? You know, we all know that the legacy research now panels were built from uh, Hilton Rewards and American Airlines. And then there are other panels that, you know, are recruited from Facebook and perhaps others that are recruited, you know, um, by invite only and, and, and various methods like that. So when you're trying to mitigate the inherent bias of we're only surveying people who take online surveys, right? You're actually looking for a diversity of recruiting methods as well. Yeah, that's what true. I, what but, I'm uh, but also, I think something that you said we, we kind of have to address. I mean, I always say this to people, is that when you go into an online survey, you have to know who you are what your population is. It's, it, it is it is the rare panel that has a, because I mean, in research, you're never going to be able to say, you know, to give a client like a, for a general pop survey, a $500 CPI. And in reality, you know, a 500, to build a panel that covers all demographic groups, all income group levels uh, is, it has like a nice, you know, mix of male, female, the ages are perfect, etc. To build that is going to be incredibly expensive. And to build it right, I should say, is going to be incredibly expensive while still maintaining that online presence, right? Because you're, you know, in order to get some groups in there, you're going to have to provide them with internet access. You're going to have to provide them with, you know, the tools needed to do research. So we know that we will never be able to get a true representative sample uh, you know so when you go into a, an online survey you have to know that you know you're you're probably not going to represent households you know like a lot of rural households you're not going to be representing a lot of lower income households and you know you have to go in there with that in mind and you and so then when you are saying okay these are the people that i think we should interview you have to know who's being excluded. And as a client, you have to be okay with that. And I don't think I necessarily answered your question, but I think it's important that we'll never, in research, we will never, unless we do door-to-door -door again, we will never be able to offer a, a, a truly representative sample. It's just not possible in, our, in, in, this, in the world today. I think that's a good point, Terry. I agree with you. I think that all the things that I try to do when I'm advising clients and probably what you're trying to do is to minimize the, the best risk way to put as it. best Absolutely. you can. Yes. And it's not going to be perfect. Data quality is never perfect. Your sampling frame is never perfect. You can always poke holes in pretty <laughs> much anything you do, unfortunately. 
and you know, but some of us to do it better than others. And so maybe the way that you design a questionnaire and think about data quality, you know, you're a ninety nine percent score, and but somebody your competitors might be a you know an eighty seven percent score, right? That's how I think about it. Is that we're all doing the best we can with you know we're dealing with human beings taking surveys. Well, at least most of the time we're dealing with human beings taking surveys, and um, you know, it's, it's there's. Well, not just that, but I mean, we also have to keep in mind it's, yeah, we're dealing with human beings, but we're not really actually asking for factual data either, right? We're asking for opinion data, which could change from moment to moment. And, uh, and that's also something that, you know, we, we have to keep in mind. I mean, it is, uh, I think, I think what we do gives a very good idea of the prevailing, uh, mood, et cetera, what, you know, the, the prevailing attitudes of the country at that time or wherever we're surveying. But it, it certainly is not, you know, and, it's, and especially in the world we live in, things change so rapidly now. I mean, they absolutely change so rapidly. And uh, so, you know, things could change, you know, opinions change just as rapidly. And, uh, and I think that's something else we have to keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, mean, I know my opinion changes, especially during this period of time. <laughs> I mean, moment exactly. to moment, depending on, honestly, depending on if I've been quarantined too long, if I'm the news story that comes out, if I read a tweet that upsets me. And so, and I think about it too, that like when I'm evaluating data quality or like a data set, probably what you do, my mood might, de- <laughs> might determine who I allow into the, further, into exactly. the data set, right? Yeah. So what are the kind of, what are the big things that you look for when you're evaluating sample quality do you have a couple of uh, i've heard speeders you know there are um straight liners and there's a million different things we could talk about but do you have kind of a go-to preferred um, thing that so you look we look at? at multiple things i mean uh speeders i actually work with somebody who i have never seen anyone's mind work that fast in my life and i'm not kidding she can literally yeah. be talking to you on the phone and like having a just a, a like a an in-depth conversation and writing a separate email at the same time. I mean, her mind just works like that. I couldn't do it. I have to focus on like a single thing. She can actually focus on two things at a time and do them each perfectly well. And so the thing is, I always tell her, it's like, look, if you ever do it, you would be flagged as a speeder so quickly on a survey because you know exactly what, you know, is being asked, you know exactly how to answer. And it's amazing. Anyway, uh, we do look at speeders, uh, of course. We do look at open-end quality. And I have to say with that, you really need to think about uh, the open-end quality because quite off, quite often and honestly, you know, uh, you see the degradation in open-ends depending on how many you have as well as like the overall interest level of the, the survey. You know, I mean, you're going to get far better open-ends when you are... Uh, talking to an early adopter of some cool technology than you would get from someone who's talking about uh, wearing Blender. You know, it just isn't, uh, you know, I mean, it's just going to be different. So you really have to look at uh, what you're doing there. I think the the things that we, you know, that we best have, uh, that we are the tools that we would be best to use. Uh, You can put traps into a survey, right? I, I like, I personally like logic traps. I wish we use them more, meaning that, you know, where you put something in where on this uh, question, it you can only as like if you are a certain way, you can only answer this question positively. And if you are that same person, you can only answer this question negatively because the question, you know, is like 
polar opposites just worded differently. I like things like that. I think that's a good way to catch if somebody's actually really paying attention without like grabbing their attention right. that, hey, I'm looking at this. Because the thing is, I, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going to go off topic here, but you know, a lot of people say we put in logic traps and things like that. The thing is, though, we put in the same logic traps, right? You know, like you're going through a, an open end or, or through a, you know, a series of attributes and it says, oh, I'll put a five in here. You know, people just get used to seeing that. Some people actually, uh, my old company, we used to do research on research. They actually would get offended by that because if you're a respondent takes your, you know, a survey seriously and you're seeing somebody put something like that in, they're like, what, you don't trust me? I, they, they do. They get really offended by that. But I think if you do more subtle things, as I mentioned, like a, something that reads logically, you change it fairly often in surveys. I think those are the ones that actually work the best. And open ends do honestly work. It's um, it's really interesting sometimes what you see in open ends. And, and, and sometimes the most surprising things come out. And uh, we've we've stopped using uh, certain sampling sources simply because of things that were uh, said in the open ends. So I would say that is a big thing for us as well. But personally, I like the logic traps. Yeah, I like I like the logic traps as well. And you know, I've I've tested all kinds of different things. And to your, you made a point that sometimes people are offended by the question you ask. I think that's a big case of today. That you know, I, and I've done this myself. I'm not criticizing anybody in particular. I think as an industry, we do this. Is I've asked the question, hey, what color is the sky? Is it blue or pink <laughs> or yellow? Um, I've asked, what's two plus two? And my latest is, have you been to the moon in the past 30 days? And I don't, then I'm like, well, I don't know if I should remove them because maybe they're just kind of being a jerk. Like, I'm going to ask you 50 questions about a paper towel and then I'm going to ask you when to the moon. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. So. We've kind of gone too far in that direction in many ways. But the, to, to your point around the logic checks, I do that. I find those to be really, if you can subtly do some logic checks and test their engagement, that's a really good way. And I completely agree with the open ends, but it's like anything else in research. It, it depends. I told a client once that my preferred method of evaluating data quality is open ends. And I think they put in nine <laughs> open ends. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you go too far <laughs> the other direction, like, yeah, open end's probably the best, but by that third open end, people are really tired of it. And so, yeah, I can, yeah, I like the way you think about it. And it's it's just, it, it depends. It's, it's so Yeah, and you know what, and you can do it pretty easily too, especially if you have attributes, because, you know, you can put, you know, like just choose an attribute and, you know, uh, say something like, you know, has a great orange taste and, you know, or something like that. And you know, on a one to five scale and then has no orange taste at all. I mean, it's pretty easy to do something like that and blend it in naturally with the survey. But I, now going, uh, I, I have to kind of expand on my, what I said though. I mean, we use multiple things and we, we kind of multiple traps, I would say, or data quality points. Uh, and we kind of assign people a score. A lot of this is done uh, automatically and I would like and I say we do it obviously someone does it for us but uh, <laughs> but uh, I also like that too because that way you're looking at many things you're not just looking at okay this has a bad open end uh, you know it, it's uh, I think that really is the best way but again if I had to choose a favorite I like the logic trap okay and uh, you know I agree with you that you mentioned that um, looking at a lot of different things and getting a scoring system 
that's that's my preferred method as well. Is multiple there should be multiple ways to evaluate the data quality and when I do it myself, I sort by length of interview. And usually, if you're the fastest, you have other data quality fails. And I, by the way, I completely agree with your point on the speeders. I know people that do things so fast, and I, I would never remove somebody solely for speeding unless it's completely unreasonable. Like you know that a yeah. bot is doing it. But yeah, I think that getting a variety of data quality measures and then using some sort of scoring system and trying to be consistent with that is, is yeah, what I, I like think that do. makes the most sense, quite honestly. But think about data quality. Do you think, do you think about, or does the late group think about data quality differently um, in terms of healthcare as we do? Most of what I do is in consumer. Do you have to think about it a little bit differently when you're dealing with physicians or sufferers of um, illnesses? So, yeah, it's, there, there's a lot of components in there, and I'll, I'll try not to be too long-winded yeah. about it. <laughs> On the physician side, I feel fairly good. We have a, a pretty low cl- clean-out rate I, with physicians yeah. being sort of validated, you know, that that they are actually who they say they are. And, you know, our panel providers and you guys, you know, are pretty diligent about knocking people out of panels, the physicians out of panels who are not paying attention. Our clean-out rates for physicians are, are very low, which is good. It's kind of nice to see that. I mean, occasionally we run across speeders and things like that. We, we're normally very, very diligent about data quality. Um, and too many times in, in my career, I've run across a data set where I look in there, it's like, something looks funny here. I start pulling them back the onion a couple layers. I'm like, oh, there you go. There's 15 people who are playing games, so I got to toss them out and redo the analysis. <laughs> <laughs> and that's no fun yeah. at all. Yeah. On the consumer side, on the consumer side, yeah, for for sure, that's where I I, I try to be pretty careful because it feels like it's a little bit more open. The recruiting, you know, can take on a little bit more, um, you know, free for all mentality from people. So we try to be very diligent about that, and we see you know a lot of bots coming in from China and you know so a lot of other countries. Not to single out China, but that's recent experience that we had. And then sometimes we feel like it's real people and actually real people sitting there just getting paid to take surveys. Um, so we pretty try to be pretty diligent about that. On the patient side, again, there's you guys and everybody does you know a pretty good job of asking people what they're and have them profiled with certain conditions. And so for the most part, we see it tends to be, you know, the panel members tend to be pretty vetted already. Again, there, there's always a certain percentage that we have to clean out, and that's perfectly fine. It's just part of the job. Once we start getting into lower in- incidence patients, that's when you know you kind of have to open up the panels to you know a broader audience. And and again, there's a right. little bit less control over that, and that's where we also have to be very very careful because our sample sizes you know might be 50, and if 15 of those are not real people, then you know we're we're, we're in trouble. So. It just kind of depends on what we're looking at with data quality, but yeah, we have we have documentation out the wazoo on you know cleaning algorithms and things like that and things to look for. We we read a lot of open ends. In fact, yesterday I, th- I looked through two data sets to and you know scan through open ends. Like, are you are they using the same words? Is this the same person? I think maybe it is. Let's on the safe side. Let's just drop them out. So, right. yeah, hopefully that answered your question. It's a, you know, there, there's a lot involved in that. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's that sounds great. 
Andrew, I've hogged the interview for the past 15 minutes, and I apologize for that. That's on me. And we went through a lot of topics there, and I didn't ask for your perspective or give you a chance to follow up with any questions. I'm curious if you <laughs> had a point of view or question or anything. No, that's totally fine, Brian. It's totally fine. Yeah, you know, I maybe just following up with Steve a little bit more, you know, kind of pushing on the, you know, from from a sampling perspective, specifically as it pertains to data quality in the patient space. Are there things that you're looking at differently in the data set? Um, as you would with a consumer survey when you're trying to determine the quality of of a respondent and whether or not you're ultimately going to include them in your analysis. Um, you know, specifically, I think that I've heard from some researchers, you know, that they may be, you know, more lenient with open ends if it's a particularly, I, the words that are coming to mind are kind of like morbid or depressing disease state. Um, someone who's in the terminal stages of a cancer, right? You know, they might not be very happy with taking the survey in general. Um, and, and so I'm just wondering, you know, is that something that when you're reviewing open ends, is that something that you take a look at, um, especially compared to, you know, a survey about shoes or something where you might be, you know, kind of more, um, prone to, to give someone the the axe if they're being uh, short with you. Right, right. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I feel like as long as they're providing some level of information, I mean, the, the qualitative is usually, the open ends are usually used to add some color to it. So I'm not going to ding somebody for being a little brief. Um, and like you said, you know, you know, I, I run an ATU with metastatic breast cancer um, patients, stage four, so they're pretty far far advanced. And even with that group, and you know, with you know, really across the board for patients, I find that when they're taking the surveys, they they almost seem to enjoy. At least I like to think they're they sort of enjoy talking um, about what's going on with them and answering the questions. We get a, we ask a question always at the end of the survey, you know, so what do you think about this survey? Just sort of an open end, give them a chance to, to vent or say they liked it or to say thank you, whatever they want to do. And we hear a lot of people saying, oh, this is great. This was really well constructed. It, you know, it, it was nice to answer some of these questions. It's, it, you know, that's not the majority by a long shot, but I generally find that their responses are very thoughtful and they're, you know, they're, they're trying to do the best they can. Um, and, and obviously not everyone's a, a great typist. So we try to work around the, the, the misspellings and, and the, the grammar and stuff like that. I, again, I don't concern myself with that. Just that a respondent is providing some level of consideration. And even if the open ends are not very good at all, as long as I feel like the close ended the the ratings and, and other than selections like that were were honest. They were based on some kind of thought and reflection of what they were actually feeling and and, and thinking and what they do, because that's really what we're trying to to capture there. Again, if they're not big typers or whatever, I'm not going to hold them. You know, hold back on them. I oftentimes use the open ends like to try to to identify if somebody's the same person if they say the exact same thing, and you ask also ask you know about patients in general versus consumer, I'll, I'll kind of link to that as well. I, I find cleaning data a little bit easier on the patient side than consumer because patient side, there's 
it's like, well, you, you can't be on this multiple of medications. You can't have done this and also done that. So, you know, typically with our surveys, there's sort of a story flow, you know, when were you diagnosed and how long have you been on this medication and then that one, that sort of stuff. There's a, there's a logical order to all that, whereas it doesn't really matter whether they shopped at Home Depot first or Lowe's or, you know, bought a gutter system or whatever that is on the consumer side. Um, so I, I tend to find it a little bit easier on um, with patients and that, that they are, they're very thoughtful in a lot of the, the open ends that they provide for the most part. I have two follow-ups to that. The first one is sort of a direct follow-up, but a little bit more abstract. So I'm actually going to move it back a bit and ask you a question about, um, so when, when you're, when we as online quantitative researchers are designing a survey, one of the most important things is the screener. And one of the most important things that affects the data quality is that the screener makes sure that the people who are getting into the survey are the right folks, right? And, you know, you mentioned that we all do our darndest to make sure that respondents are pre-profiled in a non-leading way, um, that there's as much validation as possible, and so on and so forth, so that, you know, when someone says, you know, hey, I have diabetes, they actually have diabetes, they're just not suspecting that they will get more surveys or higher incentive surveys by saying that they have a disease state. So I'm curious, when you're designing screeners, um, and, and you actually alluded to this a little bit as well, when you're talking about there being sort of logical contraindications, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that someone can't have this and this. I'm curious if you could give us just a few examples of, you know, maybe it's not in the screener, maybe they're trap questions. Mm, yeah. What goes into the design to verify for you, because I, I can only tell you this person has previously told us that they have this disease state. What additional steps do you take as sort of quality checks on verifying that someone is the type of patient they say they are? Mm, that, that's a great question. Um, we, we have, um, you know, worked at trying to coalesce, you know, bring together a bunch of different you know, angles at getting at that question in documentation. And so we have, you know, almost like 30, 40 different survey questions and survey types that might go into different aspects of a survey that I can open up at any point and take a look where, you know, some examples. And it's, it's, you know, weird stuff and it sounds weird, but stuff like, you know, which of these is colored blue, which of these is a triangle. We'll ask about, something, like you said, contraindications. I recently, actually for the metastatic breast cancer study I run, I, I made up a kind of cancer and I put it in there just to see if somebody selects it. Well, then we know their, their game. Unfortunately, nobody selected. I was laughing about that with one of my colleagues. I was like, well, I bothered to come up with a name and nobody selected. I didn't catch anybody with it. But we'll take a look at, at some of those things. Um, asking like the diagnosis question, asking it again at the end of the survey and making sure that they match because that's something that's not up for, you know, debate. You know, you, they either have it or they don't. So it's a good sort of, you know, way to, to validate. Then there's some other questions about, you know, throughout we'll say, you know, for quality control purposes, you know, please select four here. Uh, we'll, we'll bring that in and then we prompt them if they don't select four, you know, please take your time, think about your responses. So we'll try to stop them there maybe try to bring them back in the loop. Maybe they're watching Jeopardy at the same time they're taking their survey in front of them. Again, that stuff happens. So, um, you know, just giving them a little bit of prompt 
to to go through. So there's various questions like that that we can use to validate or ask for certain types of response patterns or, or something like that too. And there's usually, we call them QC checks, quality control checks. Um, not very creative, but it's very descriptive. There's usually three or four or five of them within a survey and they get, you know, that they have to, if they fail, you know, X number of them, then along with other things like time in the survey, straight lining, other things like that, then we would, you know, consider them not good quality responded either because they're not paying attention or because they're not the person we think they are. That's great. That's a lot of good research going on with those different methodologies you're using. Yeah, you mentioned a lot there. And, you know, one thing I'll say is that, yeah, fraud is rampant, and I, I feel so bad for a lot of the companies that are traditional panels that have mm-hmm. that built really good panels, and then these people have built scripts and bots and ways to fraud the surveys. And a lot of these companies now have to invest. You know, they don't know what hashing is. They don't know how to stop a script being built. I mean, they built basically built a good database of people willing to take surveys, and so you know, the smaller ones, which is a lot of the companies that we work with, they've had really tough challenges because they don't have the money that, you know, the bigger, bigger companies have, and they have chief technologist officers, and they can hire a team that to try to stop it. Um, So that's one thing. And I don't remember my other point, but I do think it's improving. And we, we are putting a lot of effort around it. And you mentioned a lot of names, there's a lot more, I mean, we're both aware of a lot of new platforms that are out there to try to help the data quality. And I think we're on the right path. I think we're moving slower than I would hope in terms of improving quality. Um, and I'll just... Yeah, I do. And do, I think part of this fraud well. detection has come about because of the financial industry, right? There are so many people trying to, you know, defraud, you know, yeah. banks and financial institutions and create accounts and scam and skim money off of your account when it's not their account. Um, and so a lot of these, you know, these fraud detection services has, have come up as a result of financial institutions, but they've been reapplied to surveys and, you know, um, suppliers are, are taking advantage of that. Um, just like we said, we have to keep running faster than the fraudsters, unfortunately. Um, I think there was an article somewhere that said they think that yeah. fraud is about 8 to 10% um, of you know, yep. and, and I think one of the bigger problems is if there's no consequence for the fraud, right? So I know in other countries, yep. if you steal something, they chop your hand off. I bet you there's not too many people without hands in that country, right? And because the <laughs> you know jails are full or, you know, what have yeah. you, you know, you, you don't even get a slap on the wrist anymore for doing some of this stuff. And they just say, oh, it's too hard to prosecute or it's too hard to, you know, follow the you know, follow the ants to the their home to try to figure out, you know, where it's coming from. And so they just don't do anything about it. And there have been police departments that have yeah. actually been hacked with ransomware and things like that. So it, it just, it's not easy to follow the trail. Yeah. Um, it's not easy to follow the breadcrumbs and, and people aren't thrown in jail and there's no consequences. So, you know, and if, if you can get rich quick, um, then there's no consequences, then why not do it? especially because let's assume we identify someone clearly committing fraud on a panel 
we chop off his hand and says, no more surveys for you. He can go to literally dozens of other companies that are more than willing to accept him and send him surveys all day long. And that's one of the challenges of our industry that uh, Marshall Harrison, who um, used to work at Imperium, said this, and, and I agree with him, that we need as an industry kind of a global panelist ID, kind of like a social security number that's shared across panels. And, um, I, you know, logistically, that's really tough to get everybody to work together on this, but it would help stop duplication across panels, but also... If we've identified, we can put together an industry-wide score of a respondent and block him across all panels. And that's something I think that we need to do because I think that we filter a lot of the bad respondents from one panel to another, unfortunately, because like you said, we just the punishment doesn't fit. Um, yep. We can't stop you're, them You're absolutely anymore. correct. I know when I did the local research, whenever we got a respondent that came into my facility that was doing something fraudulent. And I can give an example. We had somebody who was participating in an ongoing study and she was taking home automatic dishwashing powder to use. This is, again, this is a number of years ago, probably 2010 or 12, <laughs> something like that. And and she was taking it home, using it, and then coming back a couple, I think once a week or every other week to give her opinion to the research team, who then would give her another box of detergent. So she was getting free boxes of detergent. Plus she was getting paid $60 for every time <laughs> she came in and talked to them for a half an hour about her experience with the detergent. Well, she decided that she would, she needed more money than that. And so she put a one in front of her check so that we would pay her $160 instead of $60 for her visit. So not only did she lose oh all gosh. the future income from our facility because we blackballed her from the facility, we sent the police to get the money back from her. Um, so I don't know if she had a record, but she did produce the money and we got the money back. Um, and, and, you know, there was a consequence, right? I called around to all of the local agencies and I told them because I had good partnership with them. You know, I was calling the local Cincinnati agency saying, this is the person who's in our database. And this is kind of what this person did. I don't think that you want to recruit this person for any of your studies. And they said, thank you. We will take her out of our database. And they reciprocated whenever they saw somebody doing something or, you know, you know, turning in a product that was not what they were supposed to bring back and, and, you know, making fictitious data, they let me know as well so that I could strike that person or blackball that person from my database. So it is one of those things where like, you're right, we do need to have wow. one ID for every person. And when you find a bad apple, toss the bad apple out, don't toss it into another crate. <laughs> right. Oh, good analogy. We've already spoken almost 30 minutes on data quality. I will, uh, one more question. Where do you see kind of the future of market research or sample headed? Do you feel good about it? I mean, you're on some industry-wide committees. You're kind of out there talking to people. I'm just curious. Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of brands there. They're raising eyebrows, you know, seeing the presentations that I'm doing and sharing the data saying, guys, you know, this is a really large, this is larger than you think that it is. And it's actually impacting business decisions. And when somebody as large as Procter & Gamble says, look, we're making million and billion dollar business decisions that were the wrong decision because we trusted the data and the data shouldn't be trusted. I think people start to get really concerned, even the folks that are getting full service because they're not looking under the hood, right? So they're starting to ask the questions, what do I need to do? What kind of traps do I need to put right. in my surveys? What do I need to do? Do I need to rescreen my qualitative respondents? How do I make sure that I'm getting, you know, who I want to be getting? And so I think by getting the brands more um, educated on the issue, 
and the impact that the issue actually has on the business decisions that they're making and they're not trusting their data, that puts pressure on the suppliers, that puts pressure also. And I don't think it's just the suppliers that own this, right? We own it. We need, we own shorter surveys. We own better respect. You know, when I go out shopping for a car, you get what you pay for, right? Yep. Do you want a cheap car that's going to break down on the way home? Or are you going to pay a little bit more and get something that's going to be better quality and is going to last longer? So, you know, we have some responsibility in this as well. And I think if we can all come to the table and admit that there's a problem and suppliers are admitting that there's a problem, there's a problem and they're doing everything that they can think of. But maybe if we get all the right heads together, we all do some research on research and we don't write a bazillion white papers about it to tell the fraudsters how to detonate the bombs, then we can make our bombs work for a a long time. (laughs) So I think the industry is headed in a positive direction and we know that we have to solve this, but I think it's a together and not a pointing the fingers like, oh, well, you need to shorten your survey or, oh, you need to, you know, get me better quality respondents. I think we all own it and we all have to come to the table and come up with a solution. And that's what's happening with this uh, initiative with CASE and some of the research on research that we're doing. That was an amazing. That was an amazing last one minute that you just said. I don't think I can add anything to it. I completely agree. That was impressive. Thanks to all four, or five. I don't even know people that was. There was like seventeen people that you just listened to in terms of data quality. If you're still listening, thank you for listening. Hopefully, you learned something about some of the thought leaders in the industry as they shared kind of their insights surrounding quality of research. And it's tough. It's challenging. Um, hopefully the series was good and we'd love any feedback that you have. So send that to us and, uh, thanks for listening and hope everybody has a great holiday season. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.